is that God actually equips us and encourages us to make disciples. Um, All of the commands that he has given to us, all of the ways that he has called us to obey him, to pursue him with obedience, he always equips us for that. He always gives us what we need in order to obey him. And it's the same with discipleship. So we're equipped and encouraged to make disciples of Christ by practicing in the local church body, baptism and the Lord's Supper together. Uh, Now, when I first saw baptism, when I first uh, saw the Lord's Supper, even before I experienced those myself, I didn't recognize that those were connected to uh, obeying God and following Him, and that they actually give us what we need to disciple one another. It's one of the many ways that God gives us His Word, uh, it's expressed through the church, and it is given to us as a means and a way for us to continue on in discipleship with one another. So I hope to share that with you today, to help you to understand that. Uh, Both baptism and the Lord's Supper are acts of obedience to God. Uh, He's called us, commanded us to do both of these things. Uh, Baptism is is an expression of a believer uh, saying that that they have now followed God, that they've repented of their sin, and they're pursuing God. And the Lord's Supper is a picture for us of the crucifixion, of what work that Christ did to save us. And in the scripture, it calls us to do both of these things uh, that, that Jesus actually gave us the example of. It, it calls us to do them together, not alone and together within the church. But it's more than just a command to obey. That God actually has a purpose for it more than just simply, hey, do this because of what I've done, but that God actually uses baptism and he uses the Lord's Supper to change our hearts and to cultivate us to have the fruit of discipleship. Both of them paint us pictures of the gospel, which is, which is life to all of us. Uh, the good news of Christ is what has saved us. The work that he has done is what brings us salvation. But it's also what we live by in every moment of our life. It's also the gospel is what draws us and enables us to obey God. It's what gives us the power to follow his commands. And it's also how he grows us, matures us, and pushes us further on in the path of discipleship. This is the message that Paul teaches the church in in Galatia in his letter to them. The gospel is the center of your pursuit of God and the means by which he saves you. We have a a great and constant need to remember the gospel. It's one of the easiest things for us to forget. You know, you hear what God has done. You're told, you may read it on your own in the scriptures, 
but it is so easy for other things in life to begin to speak into your life and confuse your thoughts, to draw your heart to other things. The gospel is central to every way that we can pursue and follow after God, but it is so easy to lose our grasp of it. So when we have things to remind us of the gospel, like the Lord's Supper and like baptism, they're doing a few things for us. Uh, They're showing us ways that we're blind. You always have some things in your life that you don't recognize. It could be the temper that you don't realize comes out. It could be a sin that you think is a little problem that's actually coming between you and God or you and your family, you and other believers. We all have things that we think maybe we're pursuing God wholly and fully in obedience, but really we're just doing that out of habit or we're not actually doing it because of God. We're doing it because that's what we've always done. So the gospel begins to bring to light the things that we are blind to. It leads us to repentance. We do not turn away from sin and pursue God on our own. We do it because of the work that God has done. The gospel, when, we're fir- when we first believe, is what draws us to God. But as we continue through life, as other things may tug and pull at us, distract us, the gospel calls us back to repentance and following after God. The gospel restores our relationships not simply only with God, but also with each other, also with unbelievers. The work of God in our lives, the way that he has called us and forgiven us and changed us and renewed us is what makes us able to continue on in life with full relationships with each other. The gospel is actually what equips us to serve and to obey. The gospel is what gives us what we need to find a place in the church where we can serve Christ. Whether it's changing diapers in the nursery, thankful for that, I don't have to do that anymore with my kids. If it's Mary Burrell, putting my outline into the bulletin that you all have. If it's sweeping the pews and picking up all the trash, did that in high school, it was super fun. Please pick up your trash on the way out. If it's leading a small group, a Bible study, if it's participating in a small group, God equips us to serve him through the gospel. And what enables us to proclaim the gospel, to evangelize, to share what God has done, is the fact that he has changed who we are. He has saved us so we can proclaim him. The gospel is what equips us to share the word of God. Baptism and the Lord's Supper 
give us clarity that we wouldn't have otherwise. They show us pictures of what God has done in amazing ways that, again, it's easy to forget. So we'll look at those both pretty closely. But first, I want to step back and and look at what do we mean when we say we're called to discipleship? What is discipleship? So that we can see how the Lord's Supper and baptism fit in with those. So turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 28. We're going to look at verses 18 through 20. We'll also have those on the screen. So if you're not prone to flipping around in your Bible, you have them right there. Before we can understand the purpose of baptism and the Lord's Supper in discipleship, we must know what it means to be discipled and to disciple other people. And so at the end of his ministry, after, after being crucified and after being raised up again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So many things packed into this uh, directive that, that Christ gives to the apostles here. So many different ways that he's, he's teaching us what discipleship is. And the first thing is, Jesus came to them, and Jesus said to them. That phrase, the people that he is meeting with, defines them as his disciples. These are our These are a handful of men that have been following after and pursuing Christ throughout his ministry here on earth. And so first you have to be called the disciple of Christ in order to begin discipleship. And that might sound like really elementary, like, oh, of course you do. But it's actually one of the things that we forget a lot of times, that we we may decide ourselves, that we can pursue Christ without being his disciple. And you can see this when you, when you see that uh, you may try to disciple someone with simply knowing about Christ, with simply knowing what happens in the Bible, and simply telling other people what happens in the Bible. This is the first way that we can kind of come in contact with God and and see what he's doing. But without being actually saved, you cannot disciple someone. Have you ever tried to disciple simply from morality, to teach someone what is good and what is bad? Morality, of course, God calls us to follow and obey him. But every religion has its own set of rules. So discipleship doesn't begin with rules. We may try to disciple from our own good work. We may try to live our life in a certain way that we think if we live that way, we will begin to disciple other people. 
But good works will never paint the full picture of God on their own. You never will be able to show the masterpiece of who God is with only good works. Without the righteousness of Christ upon us, we cannot disciple. So the first place they begin, the first place to follow after God and to call people into discipleship, the first place to begin to share the gospel is that you have to understand and know the gospel yourself. You have to be rooted in salvation from God. You have to be pursuing him in your own life because he has called you, because you have followed him. Going back into Matthew, the next important thing that that Christ defines is that discipleship happens underneath his authority and by his power. One of the most uncomfortable things for us is to be out of control. We really like to, to know that we're shaping the path of our life. We really like to be in the position where we're calling the shots. So the amazing thing that Christ gives us here is that we're not doing discipleship under our own strength. We're doing it with his strength. But we're doing it under his authority. So our control is very low, but the power behind discipleship is very high because it is done by the power of God. So don't try to frame discipleship with your own plans. Don't try to make discipleship fit into what you can control, what you can do. Recognize that discipleship is based on what God can do, what power God has to change and shape the lives of men and women. The thing that we're called to, we are equipped for, but it's not always going to happen the way that we plan it. Baptism, the next, the next thing that Jesus mentions here, is to call and make disciples of all the nations and, and to baptize them. So that the nations gives us sort of a, a, a length or direction. It ex, explains to us that there are no boundaries for baptism. There's nowhere for, for discipleship. There's nowhere that we shouldn't go to disciple. And the direction is that what we're calling them to is Christ. And baptism is a marker, uh, something that lets us identify a disciple of Christ. It's not the first step, but it is the first marker of this is someone who has given their life. So we see that God is calling us to discipleship that is marked by the work of God in someone's life. And that we do this by teaching them to observe all that God has commanded them to do. We are called to disciple and teach. Now sometimes that's going to be verbally and sometimes that's going to be with actions. Usually it's with both. Where we are 
showing people how to follow God. We're showing them how to obey, but we're also telling them how to obey. And the best part of it is, the most wonderful thing that he gives us when he calls us to this discipleship that sounds huge because it covers the earth, that sounds beyond us because it's under the power of God, that he tells us throughout, he is with us, always, to the end of the age. He doesn't just push us down the hill and let us find our own way that he is with us to guide us in discipleship. The picture of the armor of God that that Paul gives us in, in Ephesians is also a great way for us to frame discipleship in our minds and to really understand what's happening when we're practicing the Lord's Supper and baptism together. So turn with me to Ephesians. We'll read through Chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, quickly. This instruction for discipleship actually starts in the previous chapter, in chapter 5, where, where Paul tells the church of Ephesus, not just individual people, but he tells the church as a group to pursue discipleship by imitating God, walking in love together, pursuing the light instead of darkness, Uh, living in wisdom, to sing to one another in discipleship, uh, to give thanks with their lives and with, with their voices, to submit to one another. A lot of different ways that he introduces this idea of discipleship. And then he brings them to this illustration here with the armor of God. And let's read this together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Let's pause there. <clears throat> when Paul is, is calling them to discipleship, when he's telling the church, he tells the church to make sure that they have the armor of God on. Because that's the only way they'll be able to continue to stand. That the armor of God is the only way that they will be able to to continue against the power that is set against them. And he's obviously, he's talking about the devil working against us. He's talking about um, the world pursuing other things. He's talking about the persecution that they could be facing, both uh, physical and spiritual. And that the only way that the church will stand is if they have the armor of God on. Now, it's really easy for us to think when we read this passage that we are a blacksmith. It's really easy for us to think that we can make the armor of God in our life. That when Paul is telling us to put on the armor, that that means that, well, I, that means I have to come up with 
faithfulness, that I have to find all of the truth, that I have to earn my salvation, that if I'm righteous, I will stand. We think that we make the armor, but there's a reason it's called the armor of God, because it only comes from Him. It's not something that you can create yourself. God's armor was built by the work that he has done in Christ to save us and to make us new. So when we read these pieces of armor here in a second, remember, you don't make this in your life. It's actually more like we're the emperor, and not the Roman emperor at this time, but emperor with new clothes, right? You know, Sori thinks he's got the best clothes in the world, that they're magical, and that you can only see them if you're super cool, and then nobody can see them because they don't exist. That's generally where we are, all standing beside ourselves when we're not being discipled. We can't see when we are living our life without faith. We often don't see when we're living our life without truth. And it is so easy for sin to blind us when we don't know we're living our life without righteousness. But there's a good thing. Somebody else sees that you don't have the armor on. Somebody else can tell that you're standing there like the emperor without clothes on. So we're actually called not to be the blacksmith and not to be the emperor, but to be soldiers preparing for battle. Let's read this together. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This, is, this completes the picture of, of the armor that Paul is giving to them. And he's telling them in chapter 5, here's all the ways and the places and the, and the types of people who will disciple one another. And he gives them this picture of the armor of God and tells them, you need truth, you need righteousness, you need the gospel of peace. You need faith. You need salvation. And you need the word of God to stand together. Now, if you were in the army and it was time to go to battle and you go to where you keep all of your equipment that, of course, you've kept nice and clean, ready to go, it's all in the right place, and you put on all of your gear, and you get ready to go, and, and your bunkmate, he shows up, and he's got his tank top on, and sunscreen on his nose, and swim shorts. Is that his problem, or is that your problem? Because he's going to battle with you. He's there with you. When they were talking about these Roman soldiers, this was 
this, these were people that fought in a company, in a formation together. And if any of them had forgotten their shield, there would have been a real problem with their fellow soldiers. They said, would have said, no, wait, stop. I'm not going anywhere with you if you don't have your shield. I'm not going anywhere with you if you forgot your sword. Because we can't fight, we can't stand together if you are not equipped. So this call to put on the armor of God is a call to us to look at our fellow soldiers and to say, are you equipped? Do you have what you need? Recognizing that these things come from God, but looking at each other's lives and saying, you know, do you know the truth of the gospel so that you have covered yourself with the righteousness of God? Are you pursuing Christ under the righteousness that he has bought for you? Are you living your life according to the word, according to to the truth that he has given us? Or are you using other things to motivate what you decide, where you go, what you say? You would not step out into battle with someone who wasn't equipped for battle. And we cannot step out into life without knowing that our brothers and sisters have put on the armor of God, which is the work of the gospel in our lives. So the metaphor kind of breaks down, and Paul gives us a few other things. He says, to pray, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all of the saints. And also for me, that my words, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This discipleship, this call, it binds us together because we really, as a church, depend on the work that God has done to save us. We cannot stand without God maturing and building up one another. You may feel confident where you are right now, some point in life, you will not. But if your brother or sister is equipped, they will be able to look at you and say, I know what's going on. I can see what you need. And I know where it comes from. I know where to point you. I know where to show you in the good work of Christ. So now, we look at baptism, we look at the Lord's Supper. These two pictures, these two uh, live illustrations of the work of God. Sometimes we think very deeply about baptism. Usually it's when we're about to be baptized, or maybe when someone in our family is about to be baptized. We think about it a lot. So think back to when you were first saved and when you were when you followed in baptism, hopefully someone was, was discipling you, leading you in that, and explaining to you 
what baptism means and how, how we follow God with it. You probably thought about it a lot that one time and probably not as much about it since then. And it's kind of the opposite with the Lord's Supper where we, we at least at Heritage, we, we do it pretty often. So we think about the Lord's Supper often, but it's not something you necessarily plan your weekends around. They don't get a lot of calls up to the church. Hey, we're doing the Lord's Supper this week. I need to get ready and prepare so that, so that I'll know what's coming. It's something that, oh, look, there are the plates, and they've got all the stuff in them. It looks like some guys are handing them out. So now I'll think about the, the Lord's Supper for a few minutes. So we think about it often, but not very deeply. But both of these things are given to us by God to equip us. Both of these things give us a picture of the gospel, and, and they teach us about every single one of those pieces of armor that we need to be equipped with. So turn now to 1 Corinthians. We'll look at the Lord's Supper first. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to focus in on a few verses here in the middle of Paul's discussion about the Lord's Supper, starting in verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he, he broke it. It's a symbol of his body being broken. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a reminder that the sacrifice of salvation came from Christ, and it was for our sins. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a picture of the crucifixion. It's a picture of what Christ accomplished with his death, with his sacrifice, that his blood paid the penalty for our sin, that his, his sacrifice took the punishment, the wrath for us. And now we have the righteousness of God because of his work. So consider these three perspectives as, as we look at the Lord's Supper and we, and, we, and we think about what's happening there. There's three, three different ways that people are seeing this. One would be the perspective of the lost. And I don't just mean the people who don't come to church and are lost, but I also mean that, that there are people who could be in the church that haven't given their lives to Christ. Consider what they see. A picture of Christ crucified, of his blood shed for us. You see the mystery. Why is this grape juice showing me about blood? And why is this bread showing me about the body of Christ? 
It's not something that really makes sense if you haven't seen it before. It's like, wow, that's a teeny tiny piece of bread. Why am I eating this? The smallest cup I've ever seen. What's going on here? The mystery is good because it can draw them to ask questions. It's a reminder that only Christ pays the penalty for our sins, that it only comes from his sacrifice. So hopefully it will open them up to conversation where they could be asked, what were you thinking about when we took the Lord's Supper together? Why do you think that Christ has us do this as a church? There's also the perspective of the believer who takes the Lord's Supper. So this is you looking at yourself as you take the Lord's Supper, looking within. For us, it is a good and continual reminder. The source of our salvation is Christ and his work. Every time we take the Lord's Supper together, this should be and the first thing that you think about is that Christ died for my sins. It fixes our eyes on the work of God instead of on ourselves. But it also gives us a chance to reflect, to see what God has done, to consider our lives, to repent of our sin, and to confess it reveals God's justice, his wrath, his faithfulness, his love, his mercy, his compassion, and his grace, all in the act of what Christ has done on the cross. Gives us a first step of obedience to create a pattern of obedience. Follow Christ here in participating in the Lord's Supper, and I will continue to follow him as I leave, as I go. But in discipleship, consider the brothers and sisters with us. So this is the last perspective here. Those who are around us, looking at each other's lives, we can see immediately, you know, these are the ones who say they're following Christ also. These are the ones who are proclaiming by taking the Lord's Supper that he has saved them. So if you're looking for a field of people to disciple, they are your brothers and sisters that are taking this step of obedience with you. And I pray that when you, when you take the Lord's Supper together, you can see this beautiful picture. I am following Christ here. I recognize what he's done. And so have they. And so have they. And over here, and over here. You can start to see someone who you might think looks a lot different than you. They're in a different stage of life, or they do things differently, or they smell weird and you don't. It's probably both. You might see someone that looks so much like an, an other, but you see that they're pursuing Christ, and you're pursuing Christ. So what you might think is other is actually much more together. That this is someone who you have fellowship with because they follow after Christ. There's a quote in, in uh, your handouts from Mark Dever. So maybe you've thought that you really need 
to be discipled before you can disciple. It's certainly crucial to be a disciple. You have to be saved. You have to be following after God. But Jesus gave the command to make disciples to you. And as part of being a disciple, part of you being a disciple is, in fact, to disciple. Part of growing in maturity is helping others to grow in maturity. God wants you to be in churches not merely so that your needs are met, but so that also you will be equipped and encouraged to care for others. And in the picture of the Lord's Supper is an amazing picture of how our needs were met and we were called. And it's also a picture of those that you walk with in life. You may not know about them, but you know the most important thing about them, that they pursue God. Finally, let's look at baptism, the picture that God gives us here. In Mark chapter 1, we'll read it in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him along the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Talk about someone who looks like other than you. And when he preached, and he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And, And here he comes. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. I know what you're thinking. That didn't happen to you when you got baptized. Okay, so yes, not, not the dove... Uh, descending and, and the voice from God calling out from heaven, but the clear picture that Christ gave to us when he followed in baptism is that God brings new life, that God resurrects, that the death from sin that we experience is taken away and we are instead given life to pursue after God. And there's three perspectives here as well. First, there's a the person who's being baptized. And what they're saying that they're doing with their life, they're, they're proclaiming to everyone, publicly in a, in a very fundamental way, that I am following after Christ. I'm pursuing God. And this is great for them to, to recognize and to know that their resurrection comes from God. But then... This is one of my favorite things to see, and sometimes we recognize this in the church. There's, there's the perspective of those who have already discipled them. And sometimes we'll have people stand up that, that led them in Awanas or that, that were with them in a small group that walked along life with them and, and taught them of Christ. And we can see the encouragement of the work that we have done to sow the seeds of the gospel and discipleship in their lives has come to fruit with the way that God has changed them. 
And finally, there's the crowd of witnesses. That's all of us. That we see again, God does a work to make them new. That God is our resurrection. That God has changed us from who we are to who we can be. And these things give us a framework of discipleship. We can participate in their life. We can come alongside them. We can recognize what God has done and see that these are our brothers and sisters, that God has equipped them and that we can come into their life and the work that God is doing the way that he is changing them, and we can speak the gospel into their life. So in daily discipleship, this translates into us knowing a starting point, a beginning. These are our brothers and sisters. They have identified themselves with Christ. We have identified ourselves with Christ, and we can pursue and follow him together. I'm going to pray for us now. Uh, invite CJ and, and the worship team to come up. And I want, I want us to take this. I'm, I'm really glad we didn't have a baptism today. Uh, this sounds like a weird thing to say. I always hope that we have more people coming to follow Christ. But I, I, I'm glad that we didn't have one today to kind of put that uh, weight onto the person being baptized. Oh man, am I doing this right? Uh, but what I hope is that the next time that we together, that the next time that we participate in these things together, that we would take a look around, that we would see what God is doing, and that we would know that we have a part to play in the discipleship of these people's lives, in the different ways that we serve in the church. It doesn't always look like you sitting down with that person for a 10-year time frame and always pouring into them. It could be a simple thing that you do with them one time that, could, that God will use to continue to grow and mature them. So let's pray together. God, we, we pray that we are always drawn to you by the work that you have done. And it is incredible that you have shown us your work in a way that we can practice together, that we can do together. That you have made your, your word alive in your church and given us ways to pursue you. God, we pray that we look to the good work that you have done. We pray that we look at the sacrifice of, of your body your life on the cross for our sins, and that that shapes and defines who we are, and that we can see others who are shaped and defined by you, and follow them in discipleship, and pour into their lives and disciple them. And God, I pray that you make clear to us in our lives that you are our resurrection, both in eternity and even now that you have given us new life, that you have made us into a new creation, and that you have called us to follow you. 
no longer enslaved to sin, but now pursuing you as your servants. God, I pray that we would have a heart and a passion to look at one another and to see the calling that you have given, given all of us to pour into and disciple in each other's lives. I pray these things in your name.